podcast one production. commentator and journalist Greg Rust and this is Rusty's Garage. For this ep I'm in a workshop on the Gold Coast. It's where I've found legendary Aussie off-road racer Toby Price who's taken a break from changing an engine to talk to me. He seems right at home with grease on his hands from a crash that almost ended his career to winning Dakar, the most gruelling race on the planet. And that love of outback racing runs in the family. From a very young age, um, I was pretty much right in the mix of everything. So uh, my mum and dad always pretty much said if something was going to blow up, it would take off my face first because I was always in there trying to learn and, and be in between it all and seeing what dad was doing. So, uh, But, yeah, riding the motorcycle from a young age, it's always been... Um, if you can't fix it, you're not allowed to ride it. So that was pretty much the, the type of thing. So Dad always, uh, yeah, got me in hands-on with all the equipment and um, learning bits and pieces along the way. But still, there's uh, still endless amounts of stuff I need to, to learn. And, um, yeah, this, this trophy truck definitely... Uh, yeah, he's opened my eyes to a whole different world. And uh, but now we still still love working on bikes and still getting hands dirty and getting in between it all. So it's it's good. Let's cast our minds back to those early years. Can you remember what that first motorbike was and, and what became of it? Uh, yeah, so the very first motorcycle I, I got to ride was uh, my brother's JR50. Um, so it was a little little Suzuki. Um, yeah, I, I remember, remember taking off for the first couple of times and actually crashing and, um, yeah, not really going going forward. So uh, kind of as, yeah, a little bit, little young kid, I, I spat it a little bit and um, stormed off and off I went. So Dad just put the bike away in the shed and, um, yeah, from then on, uh, about two weeks later, I think it was, I, I come back out and said, get the bike out, want to have another go. And, uh, yeah, at the end of the day, then it just didn't stop. It was, uh, took off and, um, yeah, it didn't come back till the bike ran out of fuel. So it was... Uh, yeah, from a young age, I've just I've, I've enjoyed racing motorcycles, and um, still to this day, I'm 30 years old, and I still get that same feeling. I think from when I was a little young kid riding a bike, so it's uh, always good to go out and go riding. Were you a tear away as a youngster, mate, and, and did school kind of take a back seat? Uh, unfortunately, yes. The school is very important. Uh, I always say to young kids these days, I probably should have listened a little bit more in school, and uh, I definitely sat in the classroom looking out the windows and um, wishing and hoping and dreaming. I was out there riding my bike and uh, didn't quite uh, catch too much schoolwork. I missed a lot of schoolwork and everything, but um, yeah, look, I, I still made um, year 10, passed all the year 10 exams and everything, And but like I say, I just scraped through enough to, to, to make the pass, and then uh, that was it, and then once, once school was um, kind of done, it was, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd wasted too many years there, and I want to go racing bikes, so it was... Uh, yeah, it was been it was good. I growing up in a little country town called Hilston, way out west of New South Wales. Um, there wasn't really other too many other things to do that they yeah, distracted your mind with other than riding a motorbike. So it was uh, a good place to grow up and enjoy it. And um, yeah, small small class I had was like a class of thirteen kids. So it was um, yeah quite crazy, but it's uh, it's it's been good. Racing kind of started for you, I guess, around about the age of four. Is that right? And and where did it take you? Were, were mum and dad and you kind of hitting the road with a trailer? And what were you doing? Yeah, pretty much. Like it was yeah, four years of age um, is the, the age you can start racing a motorcycle. And um, it was my uncle, uh, Jeff, um, he actually 
called him past a like, little club day uh, race at Condoblin and um, checked it all out with little kids running around on the bikes and stuff. And then, um, yeah, then my, my uncle pretty much said, oh, we'll, we'll probably, because um, my cousins and that were going to, on the bikes as well, uh, out in the farm. And um, Jeff said, yeah, we'll, we'll probably take the kids over there and go for a ride and should bring Toby. And, um, yeah, that's how it just kind of all kicked off. We went to the next race there at Condoblin and... Um, uh, that was my first race in condo, and I think they said I nearly ended up lapping the whole field in the 50 class. So it was, um, yeah, it was wide open and full gas from there. And uh, then it was, yeah, uh, actually the the club president at the time, um, Jeff Smith, um, who we we still know really well now. He said, "Come over and said to Dad, hey, you probably should take the kid to a like a national, like a well, like a state championship or something." And then uh, the next race was on the calendar was uh, Albury. So this was my second race ever, and I think yeah, I went through and blitzed it there as well, and then. Uh, um, yeah, I think that's just how it all kind of kicked off. And that's, uh, yeah, like I say, the trailer and yeah, I think it was a Nissan Patrol at the time. And um, away we went and just cruised around Australia doing all these like national um, motocross events. So it was pretty crazy. Was that first race bike, mate? And, and uh, you know, how modified was it? Was it a standard thing and you just ragged it? What were you doing? Yeah, it was just a standard. Um, at, at, at that time, like I, I started on that JR50. Um, I started going around the farm pretty damn decent and um, I started snapping the spokes out of the wheels and all the jumps and everything that I was doing. So uh, the next thing to step up was the QR50. So um, we got, because they had the steel wheels, so I got onto one of those and I'm thinking, yep, yeah, we won't break wheels now. Then I started breaking frames. So then they said that the Wee 50, which is a Yamaha, they said is stronger. So Dad said, oh, I'll get one of them. And then, uh, yeah, ended up breaking the frame of that thing too. So Dad being the... Yeah, handyman that he is. Um, yeah, he basically rewelded the whole frame up, the whole completely different frame to it, nearly. And um, really, at that point in time, it didn't set into what you're actually doing. You were, you're more, you'd go and race your race, and you'd come back, and you'd, as a little kid, you you'd eat whatever you got, chips and um, meat pies, and then you got a dirt bike, you're playing in the dirt and everything, and um, yeah, it didn't really set into what like you were what you were up to, but you uh, enjoyed being around other kids and families and uh, racing bikes, and then yeah, from there. It just, uh, just, it just kept going and growing and, and um, yeah, it just couldn't, couldn't really stop then, so it was crazy. The wheels were literally made in, in motion, if you'll pardon the pun, because you went on to win junior motocross championships, Australian titles. Was that the point where you kind of thought, or maybe even the family thought, wow, this, this could be something more than just a hobby? Yeah, that's it. I think one from there on, it was uh, we started winning some uh, state state titles and um, some Australian Junior Long Track Championships in, in circuit racing, and um, uh, then yeah, doing some motocross and stuff as well. But uh, from the very start, like I, I was I was doing circuit racing and um, long track and, and short track, and uh, my goals and kind of dreams as a younger kid was like uh, at the time I was looking up to Mick Doohan, um running the five hundred cc two strokes in uh, the, the what they call now MotoGP and um, yeah I, I wanted to make that switch into into that side of things in road racing and um, but unfortunately yeah I from around that six seven eight years of age I I started to grow pretty tall um, I probably enjoyed those too many of those back at the chips and, and meat pies and stuff and then uh, yeah I ended up being a pretty big solid decent kid and um, yeah I actually had a had an, a guest opportunity chance to um, go and try one of the I think they were Milwaukee Mar- 80s um, little CC uh, road bikes with uh, Peter Goddard and um, 
yeah, I think yeah, it was all in motion. Everything was happening and going the right way. Uh, and I think about three, four days from when we went to go and test, they, they actually rang Dad again and said, oh, she, we've, we've got to ask um, how, how tall is Toby and how heavy is he? And I think I was, uh, yeah, I was, I was a little bit too tall, but I think I was about, about nine, ten kilos too heavy what, we were, what the cutoff limit was. <laughs> so um, they were like, whoa, I don't think this is going to work. So never got that chance to, to, to do that side of things. But then um, that was just kind of then when the, the motocross kicked off and then uh, went to, yeah, a few motocross events, uh, doing well there, won some Australian championships. And then, um, yeah, that was just pretty much then we maybe started to realise that it could be something we do for for a job and something full-time. So it was, um, yeah, it's quite crazy. Your body frame, I mean, I know you sort of had a little bit of a laugh at yourself then, but your body frame is actually very good for the style of competition that you that you do now because it is so gruelling, so taxing. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that. Yeah. In about 2009, you, you start really pressing ahead, I guess, with, with endurance-style uh, off-road competition. Where did that sort of turning point come from and, and was there a catalyst that made you think, right, oh, this is really me? Uh, yeah, look, it was... Um once, like I say, the circuit racing kind of stopped for us. We went motocross uh, racing, and um, then I wanted to make it to AMA Supercross in America and every, uh, motocross and Supercross in America. And um, yeah, I had a bit of a rough trot between probably 2003 to 2007, 2008, um, just with injuries and stuff. I, I signed my contract with Kawasaki Racing Team at that point in time when I come straight out of juniors into seniors, and um, it was just basically a, a, a factory ride, but um, uh, results-based bonus scheme type thing so wasn't um, like it wasn't making any money straight up off it but it was uh, yeah to come out of juniors into seniors and make money out of it was going to be quite tough and um, then like I say yeah I just had a lot of injuries a lot of setbacks and a lot of things go wrong and um, then around uh, 2007 I broke the femur in 2003 I think it was uh, 2004 and um yeah, I had another crash and I bent the rod that was actually in my right leg and broke one of the screws. So um, then I had 2007 off basically to um, just get that all fixed up and get it all back to normal because I, I just couldn't train properly. I couldn't ride the bike. It was everything hurt from the, the morning you woke up to when you went to sleep. So it was was never too much fun. And then, um, yeah, I made a bit of a last ploy, bit of a chance to it in 2008. And, um, yeah, had a bit of a... A deal back through the main shop that I, I'd done through all my junior career was JMP Motorcycles in Griffith, and um, they supplied a couple of bikes for me to go and race the nationals. And but then I made that um, that year was not too bad. I couldn't didn't quite crack the top ten in the um, in the championship due to missing like one round um, in Tasmania, which I couldn't afford to get to myself, being a privateer. And then I just basically switched over. Then um, Kawasaki said that we can't really offer you the same kind of package with, with the motocross side of things but we do have an enduro team um do you want to try that out and um i kind of little as yeah young crazy kid <laughs> thought he knew everything and whatnot and it's like yeah no nah, i'm not doing that it's, it's not possible it's not going to happen and and then uh yeah kind of went away for a couple of days and sat and thought about it and i was like well i'm not going to get nothing else anywhere and this is my last chance to keep riding motorcycles so Went and uh, took the idea and said, yep, I just had that mindset of, yeah, like I say, young kid, just going, I'm going to go in there and smash an enduro and just, yeah, smoke everybody and then um, take their money and then I'll go and uh, go back to motocross and <laughs> pay my way again to try and make it in motocross. And uh, funnily enough, yeah, I, I went into the 09 championship uh, with the Kawasaki uh, MSC off-road race team and um, won the championship my first year and um, 
didn't make huge money, but it was uh, enough to I could have, like I said, set out to my normal plan to go back to motocross. But I actually enjoyed it and had a lot of fun. So it was uh, we uh, kind of then just stuck with it, and it was it's been yeah, it's been the the best kind of choice I've done my whole life really. So it's uh, it's worked out for the best. And you got to represent Australia that year too, didn't you? You Went to Portugal in '09, finished 14th in the world, but you were the fastest. Under twenty three rider that year. I mean, it was remarkable, mate, wasn't it? Yeah, that's it exactly. I um, yeah, it was my first kind of chance to go and represent Australia and uh, first offer on it. And um, we got over there. I was actually selected to go into the junior team, um, which yeah was the under twenty three division and class. But uh, uh, right at the last minute, we had a, a rider uh, injure himself uh, on the senior team, and um, yeah, they basically just said we have to bump someone up and in, into the into the senior group but I was still racing in the under 23s um, championship so uh, yeah I went, went in there and um, yeah like the, the 14th outright result didn't doesn't sound too good but there was that's that's the world's best um, yeah riders all all from every every country in the world so it was uh, we're all there at that race and um, yeah to be competitive and be up near near the front with them all the whole way it was uh yeah, quite amazing, and then like you say, yeah, to come away with an under twenty three uh, championship with it, it was uh, yeah, it was basically the start of start of good things to come then, and that's uh, how we uh, went the went the orange way and uh, KTM jumped on board. That was my next question because then the Austrian manufacturer KTM, famous orange colours, as you rightly say. I mean, they they have such a great record when it comes to dirt bike racing, but particularly off road competition of which you're now synonymous with. How did that, was, was it that event in Portugal? How did the door open to, to ultimately begin working with them? Yeah, look, I think I think with the result from winning here in the first year uh, in Australia, we had um, Stefan Merriman come back uh, from the world stage doing all the World Enduro Championships and um, he actually just finished the last round before he came back in 09 and uh, he won the last round of the World Championship and um, so everyone kind of thought, yeah, that was, yeah, he was going to smoke us and everything. And it's still to this day, he was fast and, and full gas and wide open and it was hard to beat him, that's for sure. But uh, we're, we're lucky enough to, yeah, to get a, get the um, Australian Championship in 09. And then uh, then I think, yeah, the result at the end of the year of 09 with the uh, the six-day Enduro Championship, I think this kind of opened the door a little bit, uh, a little bit more for us. And um then KTM Australia um, basically said that yeah they wanted to to switch over um, to their brand and uh, Kawasaki wanted to keep me on board but they said yeah they don't have the budget what uh, what what I'm kind of probably worth now so um, yeah we uh, yeah unfortunately I had a good streak with Cowie I, I ran with them for 15 16 years or something I think so from pretty much from 60s all the way through to seniors and racing um, motorcycles uh, in the seniors I, I was on a Cowie and. But um, yeah, it's been been good. I made that switch to KDM, and um, yeah, definitely, like you say, they're a driving force to the to to the world now. So it was um, back in 2000, 2002, They were like, ah, oh, KDM will is a is a good brand of motorcycle, but they'll never win a Supercross race. They'll never win a championship in Supercross, motocross, and they've been really they've been pretty strong in enduro and everything. But um, yeah, nowadays it's uh, I think. I think their tally now is like 200 odd world championships, and uh, they're definitely a huge, big driving force to the um, to the motorcycle uh, racing. So it's uh, it's it's cool to be a part of that brand, and so very dominant at uh, at Dakar, which we'll which we'll get to. You win Fink at your first attempt. I mean, this is the Australian off-road equivalent of Bathurst of Baja. It's a little place 
about just over 200k south of, of Alice Springs and you, on the June holiday long weekend, you race down there one day, you race back the next and it's developed this cult following globally, mate, hasn't it? Yeah, indeed. It's um, it's starting to get a, a good following from all around the world. So it's, uh, it's a race that um, yeah, not many people around the world uh, would really sign up for and, and want to do. Um, I, I show a lot of my footage and clips and everything and uh, some of the guys in Baja and, uh, have come over and tried, um, haven't succeeded. Uh, and there's also people in Dakar and that that watch footage and just go, that's just one race that they would never come near with a high speed. So... Like I say, yeah, we, we travel in some of the yeah biggest deep whoops of like about waist deep on a normal grown human. Um, and then basically, yeah, we, we're travelling at speeds anywhere like 125 kilometres an hour average. Uh, for Average. Two, that's average, <laughs> yeah. So that's with two fuel stops as well. So it's uh, basically two fuel stops are out 15 seconds each, roughly. If you can get out under 15, it's, you're doing a pretty – the team's doing a good job. Um, so, yeah, it's it's quite remarkable how crazy this race is. And, um, and yeah, like I say, it, it is our – uh, off-road Baja race of Australia and basically our, our Bathurst uh, 1000 um, for, for off-road racing so it's definitely starting to get a lot of people following the event and, um, and and travelling from all around Australia like I say some people travel two three days to come and watch this race so it's uh, really cool to see and um, they have the support of everyone out there it's it's, it's amazing. Uniquely Australian countryside um, what do you need to succeed in that thing, rider-wise and bike-wise, because you are pinned when you when you're coming across some of those, you know, some of those sections. It, it's like the bike dances across the top. The suspension travels. You're you're a part. You're at one with the machine, but it requires ultimate bravery, mate, doesn't it? Indeed, hundred yeah, percent. It's um, oh, yeah. I, I have so many people ask that same question. How does it work? And I think it's um. Most of the most of the answer is yeah something that's just probably not too much between the ears. That's the that's about the biggest <laughs> thing. So um, I, I, I qualify for well really well for that. Um, and then yeah they say you need to have a yeah a set on you the size of coconuts. And, um, <laughs> that's uh, yeah I don't know about that, but it's uh, yeah it's 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 quite quite crazy. Just the the biggest thing is yeah a bike setup, which I'm I've been very lucky to have. Um, KDM in my corner uh, from the very first trip out there in 2010, and um, and and every win that I've had with Fink, it's been on a, been on orange bike on with KDM. So very uh, very lucky on that side of things. But yeah, it's just um, it's just time down that track. And like I say, you've uh, you've really basically kind of got to have really no respect for your life, really, because it's uh, if something goes wrong out there at those speeds on, on a motorcycle, it's. Um, yeah, you're going to be seriously hurt, um, if not more. So it's uh, it can be can be quite quite dangerous out there, and that's why I mean you, you've got to have really nothing um, going on between the ears to to uh, basically just sit that everything aside and, and go as fast as you can down that track. And some people go out this year to ride it, enjoy it, and 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 be a part of the event and, and get their dog spike, which is uh, it's unreal. Even at like I, I give credit to the guys that are at the back of the field because I know how hard it is to get there as quickly as possible in, in under two hours on top 
when those guys hit basically every single whoop that goes down that track um i've tried that at that pace of when you you start to get a little bit tired out there practicing and um to actually go through and hit every single whoop and um and go at a fairly just a decent nice half half pace of what i normally do it's even more tiring at that so it's a uh, big big credit to everyone that goes out and tries to tick that one off their bucket list your foundations were built around that event success in the australian off-road uh, championship, obviously, had a desert race as, as well. America, mate, beckoned in, you know, and in 2013, I guess it would be fair to say you had a big scare injury-wise. There have been plenty of injuries, but there was, you know, pretty decent break as far as the neck was concerned. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's it. Um, like once, yeah, everything started going really well from yeah, 2009, 2010. Um, we just started to gather some momentum and um, just starting to get our name like I guess recognise more on the world stage and um, from doing six day enduro and everything but uh, so yeah from the Fink Desert Race um, that recognition from that event um, winning a, a couple of times there uh, I got an offer to go and race um, yeah the Baja stuff in, in a, with, a, with the factory KDM team in America so um, jumped at the chance because uh, yeah I was riding with the guys I'd looked up to in the off-road scene for numerous year, years and um, heard of and, and yeah well respected and uh, Mike Brown at the time too was with the, the off-road side and he was a, a guy I'd watched since a young age um, doing motocross um, like I say, it comes back to that day I wanted to make a, a motocross racer, but um, yeah, he was a part of the team as well. And so yeah, made the switch and went over there and started doing some races. I, I competed in the San Felipe 250 race, um, got a fourth place finish there, teaming up with Mike Brown. Um, so that was like something pretty cool. I, I ticked off the bucket list teaming up with him. And then uh, yeah, we were just over there getting prepped and ready for the for the Baja 500 um, on the motorcycle class. And uh, the weekend before uh, the before we started to go down the pre run, um, there was a like a, a national hare and hound event on it uh, at Palm Springs, California. And uh, went out there and, um, yeah, basically it uh, almost flipped everything upside down for us and um, became very, uh, was very, very close to being on, um, yeah, on edge of being in a wheelchair for the rest of my life. And, um, yeah, that one uh, definitely kicked in pretty hard. I ended up breaking C6, 7 and T1 uh, in my neck and, um, yeah, I, I had insurance and everything was in place, and uh, yeah, they once they worked out where the the cost was going to go to and where it was uh, where it was heading, um, the insurance company I was with, yeah, found a somehow found a clause or something in their contract and got out of uh, being a part of it and pretty much just wiped the hands of it. And uh, yes, yeah, would so, not be cheap in America, mate. No, no, I was um, uh, starting to look at yeah figures around about half a million dollars um, to get a to get a surgery. Like I say, you can't. You can never put a price on your life, really. Um, yeah, at the end of the day, you, you need to be fixed and, and sorted. But, um, yeah, at what that time then, I was, uh, I think I was 20, 24. So, um, yeah, that there, you're like a 24-year-old, don't really have half a million dollars sitting around and um, getting sorted. So, yeah, we uh, unfortunately uh, had to make a bit of a, by the bullet, bit of a move, Um yeah, I actually ended up getting shifted out of the, the hospital there in America and uh, uh, once the insurance company pretty much wiped their hands of it, uh, the, the hospital didn't really want to know me too much, um, didn't really want to help. So we were like, yeah, we, our next best best option is to get out of there. Once we get back to Australia, my, my Medicare um, mm-hmm. here will cover me. Um, but 
there was that little snag between being there in America and uh, a 15 hour flight um, to get back here to Australia and uh, yeah, basically just hang your, your life on a limb a little bit really. So it was quite scary. Um, once the hospital got me out, I was uh, I stayed two nights in a, in, a ho- in a hotel, laying flat on my back in a, in a bed and um, in a halo system that basically installed straight on my head uh, when I got into the, into the hospital. And then, uh, yeah, we had that 15-hour journey um, on the plane. All went fairly well. wasn't too comfortable. wasn't the greatest. Um, definitely had some weird looks coming my way uh, with basically someone looked like Frankenstein on this plane and everyone's just going, how the hell is he on this thing? And, <laughs> um, yeah, landed in Brisbane. Um, then caught a taxi, I guess, straight from the from the airport to the to the um, to the hospital at Brisbane Private Hospital, and uh, saw Dr. Paul Lucina. Um, that was Anzac morning of uh, 2013, and um, was basically his day rostered off. That yeah, he was uh, going to spend fam- time with family and kids, and then um, he got all my scans and x-rays and got fresh ones um basically come in in the morning and and looked at everything and just went nah this is uh you're too you're too damn close to being on the edge uh you you've already gambled enough with your life and uh so yeah he, uh, luckily enough yeah he he cancelled his plan for the day with family and friends and um basically yeah and within six hours i was in on an operating table and um and getting fixed up so he definitely uh definitely saved my life pretty much and um yeah the very next morning he came in to see me and uh said that yeah basically that everything went really well um and yeah my my next question was can i ride a motorcycle again and he said "I, i can't see why not so it's uh yeah from where it went from in america where they was basically going to say that yeah you're not going to have a very good life for, for the rest of your life you're going to be in a lot of pain for forever and uh, you'll never ride a motorcycle again it um it got flipped up the uh, up the right way and having a great doctor and um yeah so then it was just basically put head down and try and work hard and, and get back on a motorcycle so it was uh yeah i got very very lucky i got um yeah, it got looked after by an angel for sure above me, and um, everything from there. It just uh, it's it's been going fairly fairly well since 2013. So, what did the fam say, mate? And did you contemplate giving it away? Did you feel like I, I got too close there, or was there never a doubt that you get back on a bike? Ah, uh, look, yeah, for sure. The first um, the first two days, I was kind of at that point where I was like, yep, yeah, that's that's probably enough for me. Um, I've, I've pretty much cheated cheated uh, life and death, really. So it's um, yeah, I'm not gonna won't be able to really gamble too much more with stuff like that and especially with what the doctors were telling me there in, in America um, it looked like it was going to be the end so you just had to start to try and yeah bite the bullet and realise it but uh, yeah I don't know even though I was still sitting in America and three four days later I'd just gone this this can't be the end of it like it's uh, it's, it's something I've known since a little kid and I don't want this to be the end of it so it's uh yeah, luckily enough, like I say, when I, I got the doctor here, Dr. Paul Lucina, and he fixed me up and um, pretty much said, yeah, he said, I, I can't see why you why you can't get back on a motorcycle. Um, yeah, uh, don't worry, that was that was like pretty much like I'd won lotto. I, I would have would have traded a lotto win for that any day of the week to say I could ride a motorcycle again. So it's um, yeah, I yeah just worked hard at it from there, and um, and then just yeah, I, I had the rest of the 2013 pretty much to get myself sorted to try and come back racing in 2014 again. So it's uh, that was definitely a big win for us, that's for sure. Am I right in saying that that day in the dirt in in California was kind of the real big comeback is that was that when it kind of really kicked in for you 
Yeah, indeed. Um, like I say, we we were over there uh, in at the end of 2013. Uh, we had a motorcycle and stuff that yeah we could um, could ride. Um, Unfortunately, yeah, 2013, we had another bit of a, uh, a kick in the face. It was um, when, yeah, Kurt Caselli passed away, uh, which was at the Baja 1000. So I was over there uh, basically just hanging out with the guys in the group and um, being a part of the team. And, um, he meant a yeah, lot to you, mate, didn't he? Yeah, indeed. Um, like, Kurt, we, we, we pretty much had to... The same personality we, we got along really well straight from the start and that was that pretty much kicked off from around yeah 2009 um when we were at the six day enduro championships so we uh yeah definitely definitely hit it off well and we we're good mates when we could ever catch up at, at races and stuff and then uh like i say uh for where i probably where i sit right now and the team i'm riding for now um may not have happened uh, unless, yeah, uh, with the words that Kurt was putting in for me. So it's, um, yeah, kind of yeah, kind of hard. Um, I'm, I'm sure as anything, he's looking down on everything that we're doing and um, we're, we're trying to definitely keep him proud for the words he's put in for me and um, everything. But, uh, yeah, he definitely made made some doors open for me probably a little bit quicker than, than normal. So it was... Um, yeah, to, to lose him at that race was uh, definitely that was a hard one to hard one to take. And um, like I say, we'd been riding with him two days prior, and then um, to basically yeah, just it all completely change and go the other way. Um, and then yeah, you don't don't get to see him ever again. Um, yeah, it was it was definitely a hard one to take. So it was uh, pretty crazy. Um, but then yeah, like you say, the, the bit of a turnaround point was when we we got back on a motorcycle and raced day in the dirt and. Um, we come away with a with a win there straight up and um that was uh pretty much yeah like yeah this is it's not over yet so it's uh definitely a um was a was definitely something that helped get the get back on the track a little bit quicker i think a determination of yours is one of your your incredible traits mate you just no fear and you're always big on getting back on the on the bike 2015 you make your dakar debut how did that come about and, and were you pushing to do it? Was KTM encouraging you? What what was the, the process there? Yeah, look, it was um it was probably around 2013, 2014. Um, I started to get a little bit of interest with Dakar because uh, I'd started doing some desert racing and then uh, I started to see a lot more of, of Dakar on, on TV and um, I actually had, well, we had... Um, Kurt that was yeah going over in 2012 uh, and and 13 that was going to compete in in Dakar and uh, and be a part of the team and um, yeah from there on it was just basically just watching my teammate Ben Grabham and um, yeah I I had a bit of an interest and spark up for it so it was yeah no KDM weren't pushing for it they weren't making me do anything um, it was definitely something that yeah I. I wanted to take on and have a crack at myself, but like just everything, you need everything to line up properly and have a good support um, crew and, and backing of a team. And um, yeah, so luckily enough, uh, actually my, my boss um, of the rally side of things, Alex Doringer, basically uh, funded it out of his own pocket. Um, yeah, uh, from the words that Kurt gave him. And um yeah, so I had basically backing from Kurt and also from from Alex, and um, yeah, needed just to make sure I, I got to the event and, and and done. Look, I definitely didn't expect a third place or a, a result on my very first trip, and nobody did, that's for sure. And um, to try and do something like that on your first trip, there's it's 
it's very, very, very rare. And um, yeah, look, like I say, I, I definitely had some days go my way where it was a bit of, bit of luck, and then I also had some days that were not not as as kind to me. So it was. Uh, yeah, basically got the chance to go there as a water boy um, for all the for uh, the factory team for the Red Bull KDM team, and um, uh, as as the event went on, um, the team guys basically a couple of them dropped out, and then there was only a couple left that were basically being Mark Comer and Jordy uh, Villadom, so it was um, on the team, and a couple of the other guys that had had some troubles and issues and and um, didn't quite pull through, and. Uh, yeah, to uh, come away um, by the end of the 14-day rally, um, definitely, yeah, my my wildest of dreams. Never would have thought it would have been a third-place podium. And, um, and uh, yeah, that's pretty much where, it, uh, I guess, uh, what would you say? It's just where it's all just built and taken off from there now. So it's been crazy. It's remarkable, mate. I mean, you won stage 12. We're talking about a, a 9,000K, the most gruelling thing on the planet as far as motorsport competition is concerned, respected by Weber, Ricardo, all of those guys. They all look at what you do and go, that is just off the charts. You spend a fortnight going through uh, Chile, Bolivia, Argentina, through incredible countryside, mate. You, you are a long way from home, Toto. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm a, I'm a long way from home. I'm a long way from a nice, decent coffee shop. And, uh, yeah, uh, that's, that's the thing. It, it's it's yeah, I don't know. It's really hard to explain to people in like a yeah five minute conversation what actually Dakar's like. It's just uh, if you run into some trouble out there, yeah, you're gonna be you're gonna be stuck out there for hours. Um, sometimes, if not the night, and camping out in the middle of nowhere, and um, yeah, you've got really no support through the whole day. Um, you run yeah nine and a half thousand kilometers over the over the fourteen day um, period. Most of the time you're up at least three o'clock in the morning to be on the bike at four, four o'clock. Sometimes yeah, you're up even earlier than that and to be on the bike. And our biggest day, yeah, we have is 1,100 kilometres in a day. So it's like that's riding a motorcycle from Brisbane to Sydney. Um, yeah, okay, when you do that on a holiday and stuff like that, it's, it's a holiday feeling and, uh, and you can take your time and enjoy it. But there's no taking your time and enjoyment of, um, of a Dakar. So it's... Uh, it's yeah, it, it's a job and it's a damn damn tough one. That's for sure. So it's uh, yeah, just when you think you're getting on top of it, it um, it tends to throw something at, me, uh, at you and try and beat you down again. But that's uh, like you say that 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 determination that I I have. It's uh, I don't let too much try and affect us. It's um, you just you've got to overcome those things that get thrown up at, you at the time and just uh, try and make the best. Um, change and best possibility to come out of that outcome so it's just uh yeah it's it's definitely um some of the most remote locations you could ever ride a motorcycle um and then like i say yeah if you if that bike breaks or you break yourself you're a long way from some help to uh get you some uh, medical attention and uh unfortunately i've had to experience that once now and um yeah, and uh, motorcycle repairs. It's uh, yeah, you're not just a motorcycle rider. You're a, you're a mechanic, so you're you've got to know how to work on the motorcycle. Which whereas from that young age, uh, my dad teaching me everything. Um, it comes in handy. And then basically, you've got to be an electrician. You've got to be basically a bit of a genius to to uh, improvise on something to make you get through the rest of the day if uh, something breaks. And um, yeah, you've just got to be uh, on, on, on the ball the whole time and it's, uh, it just fries the brain like every day. 
And to top it all off, you've got to be a good navigator. So just explain, if you can, to our, our listeners what happens as far as, you know, the next day's competition is concerned, where you've got to go, and you have... Uh, on the bike, a, a rolling map system. Is that right? And just, just tell us how you use that. I mean, you're doing big speeds. Are you subliminally just keeping an eye on it? What are you doing? Yeah, pretty much. That's it. Um, we have a uh, basically a, a bike that we have a, a they call it, it's a navigating a navigation tower out in front of us. So there's a, basically this square aluminium, now carbon fibre little box that um, has a big paper roll of your, all your navigation calls in it for the day. So it's uh, uh, it's it's manual. It's automatic, but it's a manual uh, shift to, to roll it. So, there's so you, you scroll it, and it's always in your periphery, is it? Or yeah, so it's all almost in your peripheral vision. Um, so you you do you're always looking up at, out on the track to see what's coming up to you, but then you're always just having those little glances down just to keep an eye on the on the road book on the map just to make sure that yeah you are going the right way. So it's there is we do have a GPS on the motorcycle, but it's not telling us make to where the make a turn to what where we're going the right way it's not like ticking boxes and stuff for us it's uh this is not sat nav it ain't no sat nav this ain't no tom tom and ain't no siri it ain't no nothing it's nothing like this at all so it's uh it's quite crazy to uh have this thing on a, on the motorcycle it's pretty much useless to you to then other than that basically just track where you are just to basically log off waypoints that are hidden so they're not like um there's not no massive big pole, no flag flying in the air. There's no car sitting there. Or there's no, no obvious burning point. obvious point of a burning bucket or something on fire. And it gets um, it's this invisible waypoint that yeah, you basically have to look at this GPS tracker to see if it's actually ticked that uh, waypoint off at at kilometre thirty five or whatever it is. And then um, yeah, you might have about two hundred and fifty waypoints for the day that you have to clock off that are just not visible to you at all. So. Then that's it. Like I say, you're you're glancing at a, a paper roll of uh, of of notes, and um, depending on how the day, uh, how big the day is, uh, and how spread out the notes are, depends on yeah, that's it, how how big your day is going to be. So if the notes are very very close, very tight. Um, you're in for a really long day, but if you've got some notes that are spread out over five, five to six, seven, eight kilometers between each note, then you've pretty much got a a day that's going to be pretty fast, pretty wide open, full gas. So it's, uh, yeah, at that night, um, we spend anywhere from two to four hours marking this road book, this roll of paper. Um, like I say, with all these highlighters and colours and textures and uh, and markers and stuff. So that's, uh, so like all for me, if, if the note looks like it's a, a, a straight line that you've got to go through a T-junction, full gas, wide open, whatever. Uh, I mark them all green. Anything that I need to make a navigation change, like a right-hand turn or follow a cap or anything, I make it blue. Um, dangers, so you've got single caution, double caution, triple caution. Um, that you mark them red. So if it's only if it's single caution, you, you can pretty much be still wide open, full gas. Uh, double caution, slow down. You've got to like a, a, a bay something. There's something's here. You got to just keep an eye on. And triple caution. If you hit that thing, probably any quicker than second gear, wide open, you're going to be you know, probably in the back of a meat wagon. So it's uh, if you don't stay on top of your roadbook and you don't follow those things uh, to a T, um, you can get hurt very very quickly. So it's uh, not only on top of that, like it, there's so many things I can explain to the to the roadbook. It's uh, the roadbook's in French, so it's all everything's so just explained in all these um, French terms. Yeah, French terms. So like TDRSP uh, is basically in English is keep straight on main road. So it's um, 
there's no yeah, not even one initial to that that matches keep straight on main track or main road or anything like it's uh all these little little terms that are um just completely completely different to how you would uh, run so it's basically just learning that system of I, I can't speak a word of French at all, whatever, anything. Um, I can't order food, drink, whatever. Well, agua I can order, it's no problem. But uh, on top of that, like, yeah, I can't have a general conversation in French, but just the road book, like I say, my determination to to everything, if if I'm going to attack something, uh, I, I put 100% into it and, and I, I learn those terms. But then in, in a general normal life, I've got no idea on French. So it's... Uh, Full gas from there, but then yeah, like I say, you just got to keep um, keep on top of that road book, and um, yeah, if you make a navigation error, um, like I say, it's not like if you miss a uh, a T junction and you go straight through and you're meant to turn right, but you go 150 meters past the turn and turn around and come back, um, then take the turn so you're meant to go to the right, so then you turn left to go down the right track where you're meant to go. If you don't recalibrate uh, your distance in your kilometres, that's how you end up getting hurt as well. Because, yeah, basically there's a there's there's, there's three buttons on the side uh, on the left hand side of the handlebars, two buttons that are right near your near your grip, one up at the top, one at the bottom, and then you basically uh, to recalibrate, you'd take see if you need to take 300 metres off, you press the bottom button three times. So each time you press it, 100 metres that will come off your off your uh, off your trip meter. And then if, um, like I say, if you don't recalibrate that, you just have a mind brain fade and then the next note from there after that T-junction was a, uh, like a triple caution, um, you will then hit the the note where it says triple caution at, yeah, 17.5 kilometres and you go, oh, and then you look up and there's nothing there and you go, okay, well, geez, there's something wrong and then just have that mind, like that mind blank, like I say, you're 300 metres more, so it's three football fields down, you can't see that triple caution down there if it's over a blind bit of a crest and then you just start clicking gears wide open um, because you haven't, back at that T-junction, recalibrated here, uh, that's that's yeah. You you end up going into a, a triple caution wide open, and then that's uh, that's game over. So it's um, yeah, it's crazy. The little things like that that just people don't quite see and um, don't hear of of the Dakar. It's a pretty pretty amazing event, that's for sure. You're listening to Rusty's Garage. More with Toby Price in a moment. In this series, I speak to some of the most passionate automotive designers, collectors, riders and drivers I know. Robbie Madison is known as the modern-day Evil Knievel. Maddo's jumped off buildings in Las Vegas, made the Guinness Book of Records by launching 100 metres on his dirt bike and played stunt double for Daniel Craig in the James Bond movie Skyfall. His love of pushing the limits also extends to engineering, you know, as a kid surfing on the south coast of Kiama, I'd always sit in the ocean. I, I used to think, how good would it be to jump off this way to that one over there? And now that's what my goal is. That's my, my vision. So I'm going to turn my KTM from 72 horsepower to 150 horsepower, supercharge it, and uh, the thing's going to float, and we're going to be able to do freestyle motocross in the water. Learn about the bike that floats in the full episode with Robbie Madison on Rusty's Garage. Heel and toe. Fluid performance driving dance on the pedals. Braking with your toes while bleeping the throttle with your heel to match the revs as you clutch and downshift gears. Yeah, it's pretty impossible. 
I do not know how you do it physically, mentally exhausting, mate. You kept that bike too, which is really cool, the, the first podium bike that you had, KTM 450 Rally. I mean, over the past, call it 20 years, I mean, they've been so dominant at Dakar and, and they're built for this event. The, the, the history of the bike, they've had various different capacities, over 600 up to 900, now 450. And it's a weapon, mate. It is, that's it. It's... um. Like at the end of the day, uh, yeah, they used to have 990s and, and 660s and everything, but uh, the way the direction that the, the rally's going, the speed is definitely picking up. So the 990, I think, had about a 200 and, uh, I think it was, they said it was a 211 kilometer top speed. Um, so once you start trying to throw that speed uh, out of Dakar and trying to read and navigate the way and uh, whatnot, you, there seem to be a lot of people getting in the getting hurt and getting in the way. So it was uh, quite crazy. Um, but then, uh, yeah, they basically then from there just went uh, went to six sixties, and then now they're at a four fifty. So still at the end of the day, like it's um, the motorcycle's gone from about probably two hundred and ten kilos down to now about one hundred and eighty kilos. So they've dropped so much weight off them. So power to weight ratio i think we're still we're still at the same kind of power uh, even though we're not getting the top speeds that they were at in the 990s but we're able to ride these bikes now because they're lighter for more the same distance as they were doing on the 990s but we're, we're probably doing it a little bit quicker because they're a little bit more light agile more nimble mm-hmm. but we're we're still getting around 65 66 horsepower out of one of these um 450s and still being reliable like i say it's uh we can't do once the, the the bike goes in through tech and, and inspection. Um, they put clamps and tags and everything on the bottom end of the motor, mm-hmm. so you've got to run that same bottom end on the motor for the whole nine and a half thousand kilometres. So it's it's not like you can go and bomb out a motor that's yeah seventy odd horsepower and a top speed of two hundred k's, and you just keep changing motors every every night. So it's once that motor's in, that's the one that stays in for the race. So it's uh, we can do a top end rebuild, but um, yeah, you can't can't touch anything with the bottom end to the thing so yeah with kdm we've got a very strong very reliable um motorcycle that uh yeah we're, we're able to to do the whole nine and a half thousand kilometers on one whole motor so it's uh yeah they they um my my dakar winning bike they actually pulled that out off the off the win um and i think they went and put it onto a dyno for another 40 hours and um yeah and it still it still kept going so it's um amazing amazing how they can get these things to last so much so it's uh yeah big credit to those guys and that's yeah we're definitely getting some pressure from honda and yamaha but um yeah kdm's been very dominant for yeah like you said the last 20 years they've won 17 straight now and um yeah we're definitely we've got the right people in our uh, in our corner to make it as easy as possible for us for the being the riders so it's uh it's not only the riders doing the job. Um, like I say, it's a it's a big team effort, and uh, without them, it definitely uh, definitely is not not possible. A couple of quick other stats: when we're talking four fifty cc four stroke six speed gearbox, what what is it weight wise and. Is it a 31-litre fuel tank? Have I got that right? Yeah, so it's uh, two 8-litre fuel tanks at the front and then a basically about a 17-litre tank in the rear. So there's three tanks all up, two fuel pumps. Um, basically, yeah, you're, you're, you're a bit over the 30-litre mark uh, on fuel. Uh, so not like it's not like every time you pull up for fuel, you're, you're not filling the thing completely to the brim every time. So you basically just work out roughly, the team works out where the fuel spots are, where we refuel, and they say that there's you've got 150 kilometres till the end of the day from that fuel stop, so you only need 
yeah, I think it would be around probably uh, 12 litres or something. So you, mm-hmm. you'd put 12 litres into the bike, so just balance it all out and then uh, and then off you go, keep going again. So it's, um, yeah, we, we carry a lot of stuff. Like there's a, a three-litre, um, I guess, a, a clear bladder, um, hard plastic bladder tank for, for water. So it's a compulsory thing you have to have on the motorcycle is three litres of water. Um, then yeah you've got all the bits and pieces of spare parts that you can possibly t- take on the motorcycle um, to, if you're like front brake lever clutch lever rear uh, brake pedal uh, gear lever brake pads um, a clutch plate so if you do burn a clutch out you can actually just pull the cover off throw another plate in on top of it clamp the plate back down so basically just makes it a direct drive so you'll have no clutch for the rest of the day but you will be able to um basically bump start the thing get it going and then um yeah it, it will just it won't stop with the clutch that's backyard sure. mechanics it's just backyard mechanics that's it like i say you've got to be a bit of a bit of a genius a bit of a a, a person that will, will come up with some crazy ideas to just basically make it to the end of the day of, of, of the finish line so um yeah like i say there's heaps of tools like all the little little tool kits and stuff on the bike and um yeah once it's fully loaded all the gps systems and everything uh, like i say it's probably about 185 kilos fully loaded fuel um water and then you basically got myself uh, all the riding gear i take so i'm 95 kilos myself then plus the riding gear yeah it's, it's about it's a bit over 300 odd kilos that it's running through the desert um at about 175 kilometers an hour you clip some stone or some rock or some G out in that, uh, 300 kilos is pretty damn heavy and um, uh, arse over red you go, so it's pretty crazy. In 2016, you win it. Five stages, victory by 40 minutes. I mean, the only person ever to win at their second attempt, and Australia's going crazy because they've got an Aussie who's won Dakar. It was wild, mate, wasn't it? Indeed. Um, saying that there, right there, yeah, it still gives me chills to this day. Um yeah, it just gave me good old chills then. So it's it's uh, to yeah, winning on my second attempt was pretty much um, another unheard of thing, really. So it's uh, out of yeah, the guys that have been racing it the last yeah, 10, 15, 20 years um, hadn't been able to do that. So it's uh, yeah, the, to have that bit of a stat and, and record to the name um, is is quite crazy. So uh, yeah, that year was. Um, Everything just yeah, like I say, you you got to have a lot of luck go your way with with Dakar. It's uh, it's definitely never an easy run for you there for sure. And um, but I just had all my all my stars align and yeah, won five stages uh, to that rally and um, yeah, come away with a, a Dakar trophy in my hand and being the first Aussie to to do that in any category and um, first uh, non-European speaking. Um, person so i don't know if they enjoyed that side of the stuff <laughs> too much because uh, yeah the old aussie way you uh you get over there in europe and you try and talk to somebody there and nobody can understand you because we just talk way too fast and but it's just it's just the aussie way and um yeah we uh yeah had a, had a great run so it was um yeah the bike was uh bike was spot on it was perfect and um yeah got got a a result that um now i'll be able to take to take away with me for the rest of my life so uh but yeah there's still there's still a lot of unfinished business there that's for sure so uh yeah you, you can't have one you've got to have two and then two then becomes four i guess you want you just always want more so it never it never ends this style of competition is brutal on the body mate i mean the list of injuries you know we know that you you've had a broken leg there in a in a recent one you've come back to to finish on the podium again in uh, in 2018 which is remarkable but it's 
it's a tough game, mate, isn't it? It is. It's um, yeah. You, you, you're not going to be in this sport forever. Um, motorcycle racing does it beats you up. It, it does definitely destroy your body. And uh, like I say, at the moment, um, everything is still good. I, I'm definitely um, I feel as good as I can be, and everything's fit and healthy and uh, uh, feeling good. So it's yeah, definitely still got to work on the fitness till by January for for next year's Dakar and. Um, but yeah, we we just got to stay fit and healthy for the rest of the year, and, and we'll definitely be uh, on a charge in January. So uh, I think we're going to be, like I say, we we come back this year. Um, yeah, unfortunately, 2017 to, to back up that title, uh, coming in as yeah the reigning champ. Um, yeah, it didn't quite work out. We we ended up breaking the femur there, and uh, yeah. how, how bad was that break? Yeah, it was pretty decent. Um, I de- yeah, it was a good clean break. Um, but like I say, I, I don't remember hitting the ground. I don't remember being in a helicopter and a plane and, um, and yeah, waking up in an oblivion hospital in a third world country. Um, uh, the surgery had already been done, so basically I didn't know what had happened to me and what they'd done. And um, like I say, yeah, I was checking all my stomach and everything. But they didn't take any kidneys and whatever and whatever else they needed. So uh, I thought I was going to wake up in a, a big bucket of ice, really. But um, yeah, got away with got away with that one. Not too bad. It wasn't it wasn't very comfortable. Um, and like I say, to wake up in a in a hospital that you, you can't speak to anybody there. They don't speak a, pretty much a, a lick of English and. Um, yeah, it's uh, that's the thing. Yeah, you, you're not in those comforts of your own your own country and uh, uh, people around you. Because I guess say that the, while you're there, the race is still going on. So there's still three other teammates that are in the race. Um, so that the team can't just stop because of myself being in in a hospital. So it's uh, yeah, pretty much they keep moving on without you because it's it's just a big moving roadshow really. So it's uh, a race that just covers a lot of ground and doesn't stay in the one place at all so it's uh you you set up tent and then yeah next next uh next night's another 900 kilometers away so you you set up there and after that's another 700 kilometers away so it's um quite crazy but uh yeah the, the injury side of things just um yeah you just you got to put them behind you just motorcycle racing you're gonna get it so it's uh we know what we're in for we we built the body up but um i'm sure when i'm probably 70 or 80 years old i will look back and go god i had a great time but i won't be able to get yeah i'm feeling it i won't be able to get out of bed but uh don't worry i'll have my um motorized scooter with a probably a ktm 125 motor in it and um we're trying to race my wheelchair around so it racing's never going to stop for me i i don't know it just it's a very uh very addictive and um it's something it's really it's bit me hard and uh I, I just love racing and uh love being competitive in anything really so it's uh yeah it's good focus is still very much on on two wheels but there is an eye on kind of four-wheel fun i guess or even it's more than fun really let's be honest and and it goes back to about 2015 and adelaide 500 and having a crack at the stadium trucks there and it's become more than that now you enjoy the truck side of it yeah indeed that's it like i say um we uh, had that result uh, 2015 in Dakar, finishing third. So Robbie Gordon was actually at that event that year and um, he was uh, competing in the car category. And um, yeah, after my third place result, uh, Robbie was like, ah, you're going to be a guy that's going to be kind of sought after a fair bit. That third place at Dakar is something pretty pretty damn special. And so they worked out a deal, yeah, to get me into a um, stadium super truck. So I've, I've always had an interest for, for cars. I love cars, motors, um, working on all those types, types of things, but uh, never really had the, the opportunity and the chance to, to try and jump into one. So, um, What were the first impressions? Yeah, I had a smile for me to be. Um, <laughs> the first impressions were, yeah, w- was amazing. But uh, 
Yeah, it was quite difficult too, actually, with stadium super trucks. Uh, I was in Adelaide, went out to practice, and here's Robbie Gordon, basically the most bad off-road, most badass off-road racer, NASCAR. He's done everything. He's done everything. I I I don't even know that guy's record, but he's been in a lot of different vehicles and cars and won a lot of championships and races. And then, uh, yeah, he he goes, here's a stadium truck, and, um, yeah, I'll watch you drive around. I'm like, God. This is not going to be too good. I, I said, mate, I've never driven anything like this. Um, I'm, I'm used to the old high ace vans and uh, Mitsubishi Tritons, and that's what's got me to races. And now I'm just jumped in something that's about 550, 600 horsepower, and like basically a go kart size thing was big suspension. And he said, yeah, go for gold. So it's like, yeah, it, it definitely um, set in pretty quick. But then, uh, like, yeah, as I say, when, once I climbed out of that thing, it. Um, yeah, a very damn expensive sport just bit me a lot harder. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's been fun. Like I say, mo- motorcycles is still my main priority, main goal, main vision. Um, but, uh, yeah, cars and, and trucks and stuff, it's, uh, it, it's a very fun hobby for me at the moment. But um, I'm not getting any younger. Um, motorcycles aren't going to be around forever. And, um, yeah, so I'm just trying to... Um, build some skills and some bases on, on some things while things are good for me at the moment um, and those chances are coming um, yeah I've kind of got to take them and, and, and have a crack at it so it's uh, it's built from there like I say stadium super trucks to then uh, racing the Fink Desert race in a trophy truck um, racing in Baja in a trophy truck with a, a good friend Jesse Jones um, which those guys it's like the elite of off-road motors motocross racing i guess it's uh it's pretty much the same what they go through those trucks it's uh it's a big basically a motocross race and 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 something that's so damn enjoyable and fun it's uh it's crazy so to get that chance with jesse to race there has been been amazing and then um yeah just uh just recently with the um v8 supercar championships they've brought in the in the actual um super utes and um i've been able to snag a ride with the mitsubishi team and um and do some driving there so it's uh it's cool it's it's great to learn all these different um uh racing skills i guess and uh it's uh, at the end of the day it's it, people look at it and go ah oh, it looks like retirement's coming soon in the motorcycle but I want another five to eight years at least on a motorcycle before that that all um, comes to a stop. But uh, while if there's a weekend free that I can fill it with racing a car, um, I'll, I'm the first one to put my hand up and have a go of it. So it's uh, it, it still transfers over onto the motorcycle. It still keeps you it keeps your race craft uh, sharp, and you've got to keep yourself. Uh, mentally yeah focused um so it, it does definitely definitely even though it's two extra wheels and a roll cage around you it it still keeps you fresh and and keeps you sharp for racing a motorcycle so it's uh any type of racing um it is is good for us seeing you circuit racing is a cool thing but it does you know if i was to be some you know animal expert it would be like the price out of its natural habitat you know <laughs> doing, doing something different as you and i talk here today we're at the at the techno supercar techno performance workshop on the Gold Coast, you've got a little bit of grease on your on your hands, you're taking the engine out of your truck. Tell us about this awesome thing that you took to Fink. It's a geyser truck and these guys are legendary when it comes to building trucks for off-road racing, aren't they? Yeah, indeed, that's it. So, um, luckily enough, um, yeah, the guys here at Techno Performance um, have, yeah, let us uh, get a, a small bay uh, out of their new facility and their new workshop here and um, we house everything here uh, for basically uh, Toby Price Motorsports um, for, for trophy truck racing and, and, and a bit of the bike stuff as well. So uh, we, um, 
we bit the bullet um, pretty hard in 2017. Uh, once we, we were going out for Fink to race the motorcycle out there, um, went out to try and test and ride. That was after the year, the, the year I broke my leg um, at Dakar. Got out there and uh, realised in about a day, two days that uh, yeah, my leg definitely wasn't quite cut out and ready for that uh, that situation just yet. And um, like I say, the, the motorcycle, the motorsport racing uh, has bit me very, very, very damn hard. And uh, I don't know, I just had that split decision um, that I I couldn't miss Fink that year, and I needed to race Fink, and I didn't care if it was going to be. In a uh, in a Can-Am or what they call a golf buggy or a, yeah. or, a, or, a, or a trophy truck, so uh, I bit the bullet. I bought um, a, a Geyser Brothers trophy truck from the states, and um, yeah, it's uh, like I say, I'm trying to in- invest into something that will hopefully take off in the future, um, and then something that will I'll have for a very long time. It's a it's a work of art, so. Uh, what they those guys have built yeah they've won championships in, in america uh in in the baja 1000 um all through the states of uh all the races they do there and um yeah they definitely know what they're doing building that equipment and um yeah ended up buying this thing um so yeah i'm here at techno today actually uh after the uh, fink chaos maniac uh i'm in attempt double and uh yeah, I, I see it. They come back to the same thing. I don't mind getting my hands dirty. I like uh, to work on things, and I got my training done this morning and um, come into the workshop for the day. And um, yeah, I, I want my my career and everything to keep moving forward. So you, you can't um, sometimes you can't sit back and rely on uh, on everyone else. You've got to get in there and, and do it yourself as well. So it's been good. Um, so it's yeah, it's a six liter built um, V8 Chev uh, Geyser Brothers trophy truck runs um, King Shocks uh, all. Through. They look like King Kong's arms, mate. They're unbelievable. <laughs> <aren't> they? <laughs> they are. They're basically they're the size of King Kong's arms and things. So uh, for the abuse and everything, they cop through down through the Fink track. Um, they need to be around that size. So it's uh, we have about probably a bit over a meters uh, worth of suspension um, uh, travel. travel. Uh, so yeah, it's once that thing's fully, um, I guess what yeah, gassed and, and stretched out. There's a lot of uh, a lot of ground clearance. And then, um, yeah, it, it, uh, what they call uh, tuck, tucked in Tuesdays, it, it can squat down over a lot of things and, uh, and get across stuff. So it's, uh, yeah, they're, they're, king, uh, they're king shocks by 4.0s. Um, so they're, yeah, they're, it's probably around about, uh, nearly about $8,000 a corner in, in suspension in that thing. So it's, um, the, the price tag on them is not very cheap. Um, yeah, they definitely, uh, but they, they make a very rough, beat-up track, feel like you're driving down the, the M1 motorway and, uh, like, you can you can pretty much only drink from a, a bottle of water in there and uh, by hand and, and by steering, but by one hand. So it's a uh, very uh, amazing bit of equipment. And then it runs um, BF Goodridge 40-inch uh, tyres uh, on KMC wheels. And um, so I've got some great support and great help uh, from everybody on there. And uh, Red Bull's jumped on board a little bit with it this year. And, um, yeah, just they're, they're, they're noticing that, yeah, I've, I've, I've got a little bit of driving skill and a bit of talent to um, to wheel one of these things. And, uh, yeah, so we're, we're fully branded with Red Bull suit and helmet and um, some uh, some signage up the side of the truck. And But then, yeah, we've got uh, the KRE boys in today helping me as well. Um, they they build engines in supercars, for those listening that don't know. I mean, some of the, the top-performing supercars teams use KRE engines. And the spec of this thing is is 
almost uh, kind of sprint car horsepower numbers, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's yeah, it is. That's it's um, so yeah. Like people don't know, yeah, KRE build um, motors for basically all the top teams of um, V8 supercars. So with Triple Eight, uh, Red Bull team there, um, Shell, uh, Shell Performance Ford team, and. Uh, also techno here, uh, so they 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 know what they're doing. They're they're winning races already, and um, to have their support and everything to uh, build these motors in, in my truck, it's um, quite amazing. So they're here at the moment, um, helping just um, run over everything, check everything. We're, we're going to pull the motor out, just get it back on the dyno, and uh, run over everything and make sure it's all good. But uh, yeah, like you say, it is. Um, even though they do do sprint car uh, and V8 supercar motors, it's more push towards the, the sprint car way. Um, we're punching pretty pretty decent numbers with this thing. I think a, a, a V8 supercar is about 630 30 horsepower, horsepower, maybe, around there. Um, this thing on dyno uh, is about 710 horsepower. It's the gearbox um, in it? So it's a turbo 400 uh, gearbox, and so it's a, a three-speed auto, but it's a manual shift, so it's a gate, a gate shift on it. So... You um, basically take off in the line and first, uh, tromp your foot to the floor, and um, yeah, and then just just start uh, plucking in the, the second and third gear, and that's it. So it's only three gears, and um, with Fink, you only need second and third. And if you're in second, you're, you're probably going through a little bit slow through some turn somewhere, and you need to pick it back up. So it's it's mostly in Fink, it's all all third gear, but um, what kind of top speeds. So we can get about probably 210, 215 k's an hour in that thing. Uh, with yeah, with the meters worth of suspension, um, it's about two ton. Uh, so it's it's not light. It's not no. It's definitely no sprint car for for weight. Um, but yeah, it runs a runs an eight stack uh, Kinsler um, intake. So it's yeah, it's definitely very throaty, very uh, responsive, and um, yeah, basically the motor was built uh, by Dugans over in in the states. It's been now sent over here and um, running here, and uh, KRE basically keeps in touch with Dugans, um, just yeah, on development and things that are going forwards and where they're going, what direction, and if KRE can find something that helps, uh, they uh, they report back to them a bit, um, to try things as well for them over there for their racing, and uh, so yeah, to have two, and then like I say, Dugans is a, a very strong motor builder um, in, in the states, so to have those two guys working on things together then plus the support from guys uh, running that thing here it's um yeah it's 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 amazing bit of equipment that's for sure it's uh people come here to techno and um come and uh, deck out i guess deck out their normal uh, everyday road car um with the air suspension and wheels tires and uh, little performance mods and everything to the motors and stuff, and they, uh, they see this trophy truck sitting up in the back corner, and um, they're drawn to yeah, it. Yeah, they're drawn to it. Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. So it's um, yeah, I think uh, at the end of the day too. So it's uh, Techno have their V8 supercar sitting pretty much right next to it as well, and um, so they've got two two very unique, different, um, disciplined uh, racing vehicles that are in, inside this shop, and uh, you can look at uh, one thing that. Cops, they both cop a lot of a beating in a, in a different way. So it's uh, to have both of them sitting side by side and just uh, looking at how everything's built and put together. It's um, it's quite crazy to see. And like I say, people are drawn to the trophy truck and how big the thing is. It is a piece of art, well worth a, a look. Okay, a couple of quick final questions to to wrap this up. Um, you had a crack at the Iron Man double in uh, in 2018, which is basically a, a an insane program. You tackle the Fink Desert Race on a bike 
and in the truck and you either need a plane or a helicopter or both to ferry backwards and forwards in order to to do that what is the body like on tuesday morning after that pounding it's uh it's pretty beat that's for sure i'm, I'm definitely very tired from that weekend um yeah, we, we, we've had a tackle at this twice now. Um, my very first attempt was in 2016. Um, we ran the bike and the trophy truck. Uh, we had a very good result my first time. Um, I ended up winning the motorcycle category, uh, finishing second outright in the truck and first in class in the truck. And um, yeah, we just, I, I, I don't know, it just, uh, it's a crazy idea to come up with and, and try and make work and have everything planned and, and go the right way. And uh, yeah, like you say, it, it's a logistic nightmare for myself and, and my crew and my team that we, um, we yeah, this crazy idea I've cooked up that I know at the end of the day, 100%, I know I can win both categories, but it's just, it comes back to that 2016 result of Dakar. Things have just got to line up perfectly and, and go the right way. So uh, yeah, we... Um, January rolled around this year, and um, yeah, I said, yeah, I'm going for the double again. We're gonna ha- we're gonna have a crack at it. We we missed the previous year with, with the leg injury, so 16 was the first time. So I'd kind of forgot how much the, the body goes through and the pain it goes through. And uh, by the time about two weeks had rolled out uh, around to think, and then uh, I'd been out there pre-running on the bike, I was like, I think I might have just bit a little bit too much off that cookie, and. Uh, it's going to be a tough old weekend because the track was changing a lot and um, getting beat up a lot more than what it had in previous years. And um, But, yeah, look, the car side of things, I had a great crew, great people behind it, and uh, and the motorcycle side of things, I, I know I'm in 100% the best hands I can get with KDM. So there was no stress, no... Um, backlash on that side of things there so it was uh just trying to make sure we were prepped as best we can with the trophy truck and uh yeah we had a crack at it again and um look day one went went pretty pretty damn solid pretty spot on um we got down to think uh first uh, we, we take off first with the trophy truck uh around uh, i think we left at 7.04 no sorry uh 8.04 in the morning i think it was and um it was something at the time like that, wasn't it? That yeah, right. it was about right. About eight oh four, we left in the morning. They had a, they dropped it back an hour, I think it was, because uh, we normally start at seven. But took off there, and um, we basically run the two hundred and thirty kilometres down that track uh, in a trophy truck. It's not as hard and brutal on the body, but it's uh, it's more mentally draining being in that thing and just uh, being up. To, oh, I was up at five o'clock in the morning to get that truck warmed up, ready, and get it going for the for the race. Um, so all my competitors on the motorcycle are still sleeping, getting rested, getting <laughs> a, a really good bre- breakfast in. Like I'm still getting good breakfast, but it's just I'm eating probably six meals through the whole day because it's just you can't eat a whole lot and in one big lump um, and and feel yeah off for the whole day really. So eating like yeah six meals for the day um we take off get down through the track uh like i say we have a helicopter that follows me in the truck um in case we have this little gremlin that uh jumps up and bites you and the helicopter can land anywhere down through the track pick me up and take me back to the start line for into alice for the start of the motorcycle but uh we made a good run down through we got uh down into fink in second in the trophy truck at about two minutes and 50 off the lead um, so we were very, very, very close in on to, uh, yeah, having a chance of winning this thing in the truck. So everything was good there. I jumped uh, because everything goes well. Uh, I have a plane that will sit down the other end and wait for me at uh, Fink. We made it there, got in the plane. It gets me back 
about 15, probably about 15 minutes quicker than what the helicopter will. So that's like every little minute, every little second yeah. counts in this uh, when we're trying to do the double because if we get a flat tyre, that starts eating into my resting time to come back for for the bike leg. So any little mechanical issue um, starts zapping time off me pretty quickly. So... Uh, so you need to take every precaution we possibly can, which is a helicopter and a plane. And um, we fly back, we get back to Alice. Um, then, yeah, basically we have about probably 30 to 35 minutes uh, rest break. So we are resting in the plane on the way home, so you do get that, that flight time. But uh, once you get to the other end at Alice, you have, yeah, 35 minutes to sit around and uh, prepare and get ready. And, um, yeah, I'll line up and go again and uh, take off into the exact same bit of track i just done two hours prior so it's uh yeah it, it's a tough old slog it's hard um body definitely gets beat and um but like i say yeah we we definitely know it's possible and uh we know we can win both if uh everything goes right but return trip home the next day just didn't quite go to plan unfortunately uh i ended up uh, splitting a, a power steering pump so um we broke that about 160 kilometers from the finish um if i was around 30 kilometer mark possibly 40 kilometer mark i probably you, you can wrestle the thing in into town um back to the finish but it's virtually like uh i don't know i've never really felt steering that that damn that stiff like it's uh that's it it's yeah. the motorcycle i say it's still at the end of the day the motorcycle's main priority main main goal main issue and uh that's yeah. We had uh, just make that call. That 160 k's was not going to be possible. So, parked the thing on the side of the track. The helicopter landed. So that was what the helicopter was for, I guess. And um, yeah, it flew me back to the start line for for day two of Fink and um, jumped on the motorcycle, ran the motorcycle down, and um, uh, it all went really well there. So I, I got my sixth win on the on the bike and. Um, yeah, and a six win for the KDM team and myself, and um, yeah, pump with a pump with that result. Right, quick shift, a couple of fast ones to finish. Toby Price listens to what when he drives? Um, bit of uh, heavy metal, rock, bit of everything. So it's uh, anything that kind of gets the adrenaline going. We're all for it, and um, yeah, it gets the foot to the floor. Your daily drive is. My daily driver is a Mitsubishi Triton Ute, so I've uh, been an ambassador for them for the last few years now and uh, love being in the car, so it's good. If we walked into the garage at home, would there be a resto project? And if so, what is it? Yes, there is a bit of a resto project. At the moment, it still runs. It's a 1959 Ford F100 uh, truck, so it's... Uh, original? Original, yeah. So it's a 292 Y block in it. Um, basically, the only thing that's really not original on it is uh, the airbag suspension kit. So it uh, lays out on the chassis, um, lays on the ground, and, um, yeah, eventually one day I'll move around to putting a different motor into it. But it's, uh, it starts, it runs, does everything now, and... Um, yeah, cruises along nicely. She's a, a patina look, so it's got all the oh, rust still in it. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, it gets you a lot of You found that here or from the States? No, I found that here. It was actually here in, in Australia, and uh, I bought it from a guy um, a bit further north of Brisbane. And, um, yeah, I don't, know, I don't get to drive it too much. I don't get to enjoy it too much. But uh, yeah, it sits in the shed, and it's a bit there, pride of place pretty much uh, with, with the trophy truck, I guess. It's, um, yeah, four-wheel fun. Tough one. This is a tough one. Two-stroke or four-stroke? Oh, yeah, that is a tough one. So, geez, I'll, I'll have to give it two answers there. For, for racing, for sure, it's got to be a four-stroke. It's just the way it is. It's just easier bike to ride, better torque, a uh, bit better horsepower. But uh, for fun, um, for just 
a bike that will just won't won't end. It, it's cheap to keep it going. Two strokes away to go. And actually, I'm in the process now of building one, um, a two fifty two stroke SX. Um, basically, yeah, just going to trick this thing out and um, go and have a hell of a lot of fun up through the through some trails with it and uh, race Red Bull Day in the Dirt, which is uh, coming up in September. So. It'll be a beast. I look, I like them. It's good. Final one. Lots of talk in the automotive landscape about electric mode, and you know we've seen different people dabble with electric bikes in in competition. Um, what do you think about that and the notion of, of electric bikes in in your world and becoming perhaps the norm? Uh, look, it's um, it's going to be tough. Like the at the moment, electric stuff is copping a lot of flack um, just because. There's no noise. I guess, uh, yeah, the, the, the way the, the future is going, it's definitely going electric way, so we, we've got to accept that in the way it is. But, uh, yeah, we, we're we going to miss that V8 roar of that that power and just, yeah, I don't know, that rumble, I guess. It's uh, it's going to be hard. And then uh, it's the same with the motorcycle. It's going to be hard to not hear that two-stroke, two smell that burning gas and whatever and... Uh, Anything like that, but it's it's the way the future's going. So it's um, we're going to have to just uh, bite the bullet and accept it one day, I guess. And uh, but yeah, I don't like it too much. I like noise. I like to make a lot of noise and um, be heard and be seen, I guess. But uh, yeah, these things are it's the way it's going for sure. Rusty's garage is recorded for Podcast One, written and presented by me, Greg Rust. Series producer and editor is Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. And our satnav voice is Alana Burns. If there's someone you want me to talk to on Rusty's Garage, get in touch on the show page at podcastone.com.au. Listen to all the episodes of Rusty's Garage at podcastone.com.au via the Podcast One app or find us on iTunes. I'm Greg Rust. Enjoy the drive, but drive safely.